energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? And welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the amazing Christina Adams. Say hi, Christina. Hey, amazing. Hey, I'll take that. (laughs) Christina Adams is the author of 17 books and too many blog posts to count. She helps writers overcome their creative obstacles on her blog, podcast, and courses over at the Writer's Cookbook. When she's not writing, she's inflicting cooking experiments on her boyfriend or playing with her dog, Millie. Now, I want to jump straight into your bio and the first question that popped into my mind, because it does sound a little bit terrifying. What are these cooking experiments? <laughs> I get asked that every time. It's not <laughs> as hard as it sounds, I swear. Yesterday, I made chicken satay, for example. That was amazing. Okay. Today, it's lemon and thyme chicken, and tomorrow, it's cottage pie. So, you know, not actually that bad. I can cook. I just like to experiment because I don't eat dairy okay. and like most British dishes have like cream or milk or cheese in yeah, so lard and butter and mm. yeah exactly so I try and find as many different ways of doing that as possible and I like to experiment with vegan dishes as well my boyfriend's not so keen on that side mm. of things um but I've gotten quite into cooking with tofu lately I don't feed that to him he is a meat eater yeah I think veganism I think um just in terms of trying to make vegan dishes is a really good place to start to force yourself to try different foods because i'm massively interested like, I'm, I'm very much a meat eater um in many many ways but i've sort of switched more onto some of the vegetarian some of the vegan dishes because they are quite a challenge and they they open you up to ways of cooking that you wouldn't have normally thought of before yeah exactly and i think people do get very reliant on using things like um milk and cream to add that light creamy flavor to it and then mm-hmm. they assume all vegan dishes have got to be really spicy mm-hmm. i have like no spice tolerance I can just about handle the chicken tikka masala. We yeah. went, um, oh, I forgot. We went to Turtle Bay a couple of years ago, and I had like a pizza, and I was dripping with sweat. <laughs> if this was a mild flavor, I was literally dripping. My boyfriend was just laughing at me the whole yeah. time. So I have no spice tolerance. So it encourages me to be creative, and I really like that because cooking is another creative outlet for me. And like when I made the satay yesterday, I put coconut stock in, mm. and that. Oh my god, it was so rich and creamy. It like I could have just eaten like a bucket of that sauce. Yeah, Probably I felt sick after. <laughs> I definitely relate to you on the spicing. I mean, I've been very van- vanilla and beige foods for most of most of my my grown life um, until I discovered HelloFresh boxes about four or five years ago. Not that this is an advert for HelloFresh, but it is amazing <laughs> and it opened my eyes to so many different flavors and ways of cooking. Um, but I, I was the same. I remember I went to a Pizza Hut. And got some wedges and they had a bit of spice on them. And I was uh, down in water and it was just, and my parents were laughing at me. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, because I've heard that, um, I've heard recently that actually sort of spice and that heat, it isn't a flavor. It is just a pain response to oh. the spice, which is what creates that obviously reaction. Yeah. Mm. Hmm, I haven't heard that before, but it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's not a flavor. People who try and just top up that, that spice count, you're not, you're not tasting anything better. You're just torturing yourself. <laughs> We have learned. Um, but let's move away a little bit from food. And I'm sure there will be points in which we kind of come back to that for, for various reasons. But why don't you tell my audience a little bit about yourself and your writing journey and how you've got to where you are today? 
Yeah, so I started writing at a really young age. Uh, the first thing I actually wrote, I was about seven. It was a short story about a China teacup that went missing. Never read crime before that, but just decided to try writing it. And interestingly, I've come full circle and I'm working on a fantasy crime novel now. And from that, I kind of dabbled in and out of writing. I knew I wanted to get paid to write. That was about as far as I went. And I went to university to do a creative writing degree. thinking like it would help me work out what direction I was going in and how to do this and that it didn't (laughs) not that it was a bad course I learned a lot about myself I met my partner at university I met some friends I did student radio but it just I still felt kind of lost particularly when I graduated I didn't have anyone I could lean on a lot of the people who studied at uni then went into very corporate jobs even though they studied creative writing None of them were really serious about becoming an author. And the ones who were, they kind of lived in this fancy land where they thought that they could write one book and then it would pay all their bills for life as if they were like Harper Lee or J.D. Salinger and we're still in 1959. And you could try and tell them that's not how it works anymore, but they didn't want to hear it. So I was kind of lost for a couple of years and stopped writing for the most part. But then... I did an MA in creative writing and that had much more of a focus on things like poetry and script writing and that really built my confidence it got me into doing more public speaking and we had our first taste of self-publishing because we put together an anthology as part of the course and when that ended I was just like I don't want this to end I want to keep going and then I started looking into self-publishing and thinking, well, you know what? I get more control. I quite like that. And I don't have to run on someone else's schedule because that's always bothered me. Um, that might actually be why I like self-employment so much. Anyway, <laughs> um, I then started working on my first book. It was an idea I'd had in my head for several years at that point. And I started working on it and I published my first book in 2016. And I'll be completely honest, like, I thought that was going to change my life publishing that book and it hit midnight on the 26th of May 2016 and there was crickets. The world did not change. I felt different from finishing the book and I think a few people saw me differently because it was the first time I'd really finished a project rather than yeah I'm really excited about this and then lose momentum and then kind of give up you know because I was that person. I had all the ideas in the world and I'd get so far and then I'd get bored and move on to the next thing. And this was the first time I'd really finished something. And um, so I was obviously feeling a bit disheartened. Sorry, the dog's in a mood. Yes, we should mention there is a dog present on this podcast. (laughs) Leave your paws alone. (laughs) She's licking her paws, which is a great thing for a dog with allergies to do. That's quite a noisy licking of the paws. Yes, as I was saying. Sorry. (laughs) We're fine. Yeah, I carried on working on the second book. And then I started to do NaNoWriMo after I published the second one. And I approached it in kind of the wrong way. And it nearly made me quit writing altogether. So I had to stop writing because the thing is, I was pushing myself so hard to write a particular genre that I wasn't experienced in. I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't researched how to do it and I hadn't plotted properly. So I massively messed it up, but I was like adamant I was going to hit this 50,000 words, even though I'd written a book in a month before anyway. So it was just like, so that I could get the badge to say that I'd finished Nano, you know? And I did, but then I had to stop for a while. So there's like a 
18 month gap no 15 month gap between my second and third fiction books and then after that the series started to take off after I published the third or fourth book because I made the first one perma free and I did some advertising and then it hit number 19 for the whole of Amazon UK the first book I mean and then it just kind of carried on from there and now I'm on book 17 soon to be 18 or 19. Damn what a journey (laughs) yeah and there's 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 so many parts of this that I want to pick up on and dive into I'm trying to think where to start so let's go (laughs) let's go back to one of the things you said about um sort of the academic side of creative writing because I think you you hit on some very very interesting points there and certainly things that I've seen in my own experience which is people have a very skewed view of what it takes to not only finish the book but kind of what the publishing landscape looks like just very much from the start like we we kind of still have that rose-tinted view that you can put out a book and immediately it's going to be hit with roaring success and that is the way to write um you mentioned that you wanted or that you knew that you wanted your writing to be a source of income quite early on in your journey what was it that that gave you the conviction that that was possible for you honestly I don't know I think it was we'll call it tenacity not stubbornness um (laughs) I was just like no this is how I want to live my life and no one is going to stop me or get in my way I I wouldn't take no for an answer mm. and there were times when it did look like it wasn't possible times when I was really struggling financially and mentally and people were like why don't you just go and do x y and z I'm like because that is just soul destroying and yeah there are a lot of people who go into a corporate job first and come to writing later in life but I don't want that to be me mm. I know that there are other ways to do it I already know what I want to do with my life I know it's possible so why can't I just do it now why do I have to go down the nine to five route for the re- for the next 20 years? You know, mm. I believe I read in um, your, your bio on your website as well, that there were people around you that were telling you that that wasn't a viable option, but then they were trying to also give you advice at the same time about how to make this a viable option. What was that? What was that like for you? Cause I, I fully have that. Like I get that journey. What was it like on your side? It, well, it's confusing for starters. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is a lot of people who give this advice, yes, they're, they're coming from a place of love, but they don't know what they're talking about because they've not been there. And yes, as authors, we do need to understand the business and the marketing side of things. And some people come from that angle, but saying things like, oh, you should submit a short story to this women's magazine when a women's magazine is going to pay you pittance and take all the rights for that story to do whatever they want with it that's not good advice that's not how you build a profile or a portfolio or you know actually make money doing this Mm -hmm. what author wants to give their rights away to an entire piece of work for the rest of their life or longer you know absolutely absolutely it's a big uh, it is a big undertaking to to do that but I mean I I myself have definitely been surrounded by people who very, very similarly, you're like, well, here's a thing you can try. Like, it'll never work out, but here's a thing you can try. It won't work out, but here's a thing you can try. And, you know, being on the other side of actually having made money through writing, I think from our position, it's very easy to see the amount of opportunities that are out there and all that, because there's, there, there really is no one path into making a living with your words. Um, but being on this side of stuff, seeing all of these different avenues, what would you say to someone at the minute who is in that journey? Because we look at these people that, you know, that love us as people that are often more experienced than us, people that have that information that we don't have. So, you know, some of the resistance, like not in a huge way, but some of the resistance came from my parents. And there are people that they're people that I admire 
people that I'm like, well, you must be right because you've lived in this world. But now that you're on the other side of that, what would you say to that person who is in that situation thinks I really want to make a living with my words, but I just, it's not possible. I think you need to educate yourself really and do the research and listen to podcasts like this, like our one, the writer's mindset, like look Mm -hmm. in Facebook groups and see what people are achieving it's not about comparing yourself to other people, but it's about opening your mind to the different paths that you can take. I saw a thread in the Ali Facebook group earlier, and they were talking about authors who have multiple streams of income. And some people were saying they get it from teaching. Some people get it from web design. Some get it from book covers. Some get it from freelancing like me. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to do it that you can find fulfilling I never thought I would find freelance writing fulfilling but I've got the right clients and I'm writing about the right things and that makes a difference Mm. and what was it from your academic side of writing that actually has if anything you've adopted and taken into your your current writing how has that informed the work that you do now (laughs) and if it doesn't I agree with you (laughs) I think the main thing it really taught me was confidence Mm. because I didn't have a lot of it. And it also taught me the importance of the right people because I have some friends I met when I did my MA that I'm still friends with now. And they had been my moral support on this journey. When I hit a massive slump writing my second book, one of my friends was really helpful. And I was like, I think I'm having, I'm going through the sophomore slump. And she's like, yeah, I know. Like, how did you know? And I didn't know. So I think having those people there to really support you makes a massive difference because there is this kind of assumption that writing is very lonely or it's people who are just going out and getting drunk all the time. Mm. And it's not about that. It's about people who are sensible and have their business heads on, but are also, they can have a laugh and they are there to support you, not to see you as competition, but to offer advice, to offer an ear, to offer a hug, whatever you need in that moment in time. I love that. I definitely found because I did um I didn't do creative writing, but I did English with drama, which, you know, arguably we, we went in lots of different ways. We studied Georgian literature and Victorian literature and all that kind of stuff. But it's amazing the amount of people that say to me, oh, that really must have helped with your writing career. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like the turn of the screw in Ulysses weren't useful in writing <laughs> horror books. Like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make sense. Um, but I mean, yeah, you also mentioned uh, there that the second book basically nearly broke you. If you're happy to share, what was it specifically that you found difficult about that book and attacking it during that nano? It wasn't the second book that I published. It was actually a book I didn't finish that I did during nano. Um, And it was a romance crime novel, actually. And I'd had it in my head for a couple of years. And it was kind of my reward to go back to after publishing my uh, second novel and my first nonfiction book. But um, I plotted it in like the September, maybe. And... It was the first time I'd really properly plotted a book. So I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd got like some little post-it notes and laid them all out. And I came to them on Halloween the day before Nano started. And um, I'd written the, the words, Poppy finds out who the murderer is. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know who the murderer was. So I didn't know what I was writing towards. And I'm the person who needs a direction where I get very lost. So the murderer changed about four times and ended up being the main character because she was an unreliable witness and she'd been trying to protect herself which sounds great if you don't factor in the meandering path I went to get to and how it made me almost give up writing altogether because I was so angry at the process Mm. because I have found the more books I write the more in-depth my plotting process gets because 
my books are getting more complicated being brutally honest um and so if I have that book kind of outlined before I start not in like a 30 80,000 word outline like some of the people I've spoken to do but at least I know what happens in this chapter and what it looks like and whose point of view it is and where it stops and things like that then when I'm actually writing I can focus on how it sounds and what's going on around them you know the description and stuff and making the uh, dialogue more poetic and it makes it just a lot easier to write Mm. And I didn't realize just how much more easy it would be because I'd always been one since that, those early days to just do a bullet pointed part and make it up from there. But I tend to neglect the subplots. And I only realized that when I got to my most recent two books that I'm working on now, actually. And I call them side quests. Because, you know, in games, you have these side quests, right? And... I hate side quests in games. I find them distracting. I want to get that. I want to get the main story done as soon as possible. And my brain is the exact same way when I'm writing a book. I want that main story out. So the side quests get neglected. But if I'm outlining it, then I can get to the end of the main story first and then go back and weave in the side quest. And it's still easier and quicker than if I'm doing that retrospectively, which is what I did for... The Mummy's Curse, which is my second fantasy book. And while it turned out great and everyone really liked that subplot, it was still hard to weave in with everything else that was already going on because the book itself only spans 10 days. So I'm trying to weave it in with the fact that there's a mystery going on and having her attacked by a poltergeist. You know, Mm. it's a lot to juggle. Yeah, fair chunk in there. Um, So how did you how did you pull yourself out of that sump when it came? Because you said that you you didn't write it for about a year and a half after that sort of... um, moment so what was it that really brought you back to the page I think it was just time I focused on building my marketing skills in that time on because that was what I did for my day job at the time and I do enjoy marketing as well I don't enjoy it as much but yeah I just focused on other things and tried to remain productive and I had similar issues with my most recent book Hollywood Heartbreak um, that nearly broke me again and I did the exact same thing. I just slowed down because I am the kind of person who just kind of runs into things and then headbutts a wall. So when you're in my language, <laughs> yeah, you, when you're injured, you do just have to slow down and sit on the sofa and get hugs from the dog, you know? Mm. Oh, just further pointing out my dog isn't here yet. Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. I'll, I'll get over it. Um, soon, soon. Very, very soon uh, for people who haven't yet heard on the podcast potentially very soon but also we're backdating these episodes so it might be a few months until people realize that I have a dog um but yeah I mean so you went from writing that first book obviously having a bit of a blip with the second one not quite finishing that bringing out that second book things took off for you on that second published book correct on the third or fourth on the third one and this was the what happens in series yeah yeah it was there's five books in total yeah so when you say took off what did that look like I actually started to earn money because I wasn't before that. I would earn maybe double figures and it went into triple. And in some months, particularly when I released the final book, I hit uh, four figures for a while. And that was really, really nice. But book income is ridiculously unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't sustainable for me, unfortunately. And focusing on my books as my main source of income is one of the things that made me almost give up because it was just too much pressure Mm -hmm. 
And that was why I started to focus on content marketing for businesses and then just write in the morning or in the evening when I'd actually earn some money. Because if I'm not worrying about the financial side of things, I've got more headspace to torture my characters. Mm-hmm. I think that's, um, it is a critical lesson for people to learn because obviously most of what seems to make its way to the front of Facebook and the success stories are these people that are just, you know, writing like demons, publishing books and just hitting ridiculous income streams. And like that is achievable and that is doable for certain type of people. And like, dear God, like congrats to everyone that's able to do that. Um, But there is, and you know, the further I go on my journey, I've definitely noticed this. There is sort of like this middle um, group of people that learn that, you know, you are making some income with your fiction, but also there is that need to support that and to have that sort of stability that doesn't come with being an author because even, well, I can't speak for traditional, but my um, impression with that is that also there is a lot of unpredictability in like knowing whether your next book is actually going to be taken on, like whether it even sells in the first place, all that kind of stuff. But particularly as an indie, as you say, it is like you can have those successes and then those successes, you ride it for a while and then it comes back down and then you're back in the reality of like, what is the next book? What do I need to work on next? And I've certainly spent the last two years burning myself out, writing more and more fiction books. Um, and so have twisted more into finding more sustainable ways to make my author business. And, you know, as I was taking that journey, it was actually in that journey that I came across the writer's cookbook and the stuff that you do over there. Um, so I guess before we jump into a question, do you want to give an overview of what the writer's cookbook is for the listeners? Yeah. So the writer's cookbook is a blog that I set up in 2014 after I finished my MA because I was part of this. All I didn't want it to end was that I wanted to share what I'd learned during the MA because you know, you learn by teaching and it helps me retain things in my memory. And also I wanted an excuse to keep studying things. And so it's been going since then. We don't do so many blog posts now. The focus more is on the Writer's Mindset podcast, which I co-host with Ellie. And we talk about a lot of the barriers that writers face when it comes to writing, whether it is your own self-doubt, whether it is not doing enough research, whether it's not knowing your genre you don't have a support network or you don't understand book marketing or you don't quite get the publishing process all these little things that sound really trivial but actually can really hold you back if you don't you know get to know them and get to know yourself as well Mm. and just um out of interest the blog you do less of because Priorities. (laughs) Priorities. <laughs> okay. uh, because I'm doing more client work and because I enjoy the podcast more. I was yeah. blogging weekly for two or three years. And that was alongside my day job and alongside working on my books. And when I when my books took off, I decided to prioritize those instead because they were making more money than the blog did. Mm-hmm. And the blog is used by a lot of schools, for example, as a resource. And that's really great and really lovely. But I've still got bills to pay. I have to be practical. Mm-hmm. And the things that don't make as much money are the things that have to go first. Mm-hmm. But I, I enjoy doing the podcast. And I think that's the thing is that I find the podcast more fulfilling now than the blog because I get to talk to other authors like yourself and kind of pick their brains. And I never had the opportunity when I was blogging because that's much more in a silo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've certainly found that being one of the main benefits of um, running a podcast is just people are very, very willing to come on and talk with you about, you know, the stuff that they're doing in their business and everything else. And like, it's, I don't, for me, it, it just feels less taxing than having to sit down and be like, okay, here's what, what is the content I'm writing? How do I shape that? Oh, it's, it's much more, especially, you know, the style that you and Ellie do and the style that like I've done in the past, it's much more like this, it's conversational. It's less sort of bound by those kind of strict rules. 
Um, how did the podcast come together? Because had you collaborated with anyone before that point, and how did you kind of get to work on that with Ellie? I'd had it in my head for a while to do a podcast because I did student radio um, until 2011, won an award doing it, really enjoyed doing it. Nice. But I didn't want to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it felt like too much pressure and I didn't want to be the main attraction, if you will. And so we approached Ellie because we'd done a couple of things together before and a lot of people have commented that we bounced off well against each other. And so... I thought, you know, she's coming at it from a different perspective because she's working on her first book at the moment to publish this year, whereas I've actually published a lot more. And so she can come from that newbie perspective of like, what does this thing mean? How do I do it? Whereas mm. I'm coming at it from a more advanced perspective, forgetting how much I actually know. And so um, we started planning it in November 2020, I think. And recorded our first episodes in the December. And yeah, it was weird. It was an adjustment, you know, um, because podcasting is not radio and it requires more editing and getting used to the mechanics and working with someone else because I'm very much used to doing things on my own. And we have a really, some really lovely supporters, really lovely community. Everyone's really helpful, very positive. And also because of my own health issues, we do have a lot of listeners who have similar problems with chronic pain and things. And I think it just gives them a glimmer of hope that mm. if I can do it, they can as well. Oh, I'm loving this. I uh, <laughs> So I've had so many conversations with people recently about um, there's this kind of imposter syndrome epidemic everywhere. Uh, and I ran a mini course for writing short, short horror stories with uh, my buddy Luke Condo and we've had some people in that group and I will soon be co- recording an episode of this podcast with all of those people because they were so enthusiastic they were so um just grabbed and fired up and everything else and I've asked them to come on this podcast as a group and immediately some of the, the messages I got back were along the lines of like well I don't know what I have to say and like it's amazing how no matter who we are and what stage we're at by just putting ourselves out there and just being honest with the stuff that we do and sort of showcasing that you know, if you are a mum of three and you've barely got any time in the day, but you get passion from writing short stories, like you can inspire someone just by showing up. And it sounds like the writer's mindset is definitely a platform that is enabling that for, for other people. Yeah, I like to hope so. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so I did notice as well that when the podcast launched, it was the writer's cookbook. Um, obviously, well, presumably in line with the website that you ran. What was it that made the switch to the writer's mindset? So it was because we wanted to kind of niche down a bit more, be a bit more specific. And also because um, it makes it clearer what we're actually talking about. Because the writer's cookbook, if people understand, well, if people are a reader of the blog, then they know what we're talking about. But if I were to go back to 2014 me, I wouldn't pick the writer's cookbook as a name because it confuses a lot of people and it confuses search engines. It's not very clear and I think having a clear name is really important and just changing the podcast title did actually make a difference in the number of downloads that we got Mm. um between seasons one and two so yeah we kind of changed it just to be a lot more specific about what direction we were headed in yeah and what was it that made you choose to go seasonal with the content because I've I've had this back and forward so many times like a different podcast because obviously sticking to something weekly is quite the commitment but you have created seasons with the show what was it that made you stick with that 
it gave me a break because <laughs> I do all of the editing and you know editing podcast takes a long time mm-hmm. so it gives us a break and it also gave Ellie more time to focus on doing her MA at the time and it'll also now give her time to focus on her new job which she starts at the end of March I so Ellie. yeah um it'll be the same similar kind of thing but more complicated okay. so and obviously changing jobs is also um a bit of a mind fuck Mm -hmm. So it's going to give her that buffer period to adjust. And what we normally do is we post filler content um, during the gap. So it's still bringing in the downloads and stuff and the views on YouTube, but it's repurposing stuff we've already got. Like um, the first gap, we repurposed some videos I recorded for an old challenge. And then the next one, Ellie revisited some of our old episodes and talked about what she'd learned. And she was very frank about the fact she'd ignored the advice we talked about in the very first episode. Because our very first episode was nine surprising reasons you can't finish your work in progress. And she made some of those mistakes on her MA. So she was very frank and honest about that. And I really appreciated that. And then um, the next gap that we're going to have in April, we're going to repurpose some of our older episodes and kind of take clips from it. Like we're going to take your old interview and clip half of that and use that. And we're going to take some of Sasha Black's episode. And we've got some outtakes from when I spoke to one of my MA tutors and we went on a bit of a segue talking about ghost stories that wasn't relevant at all, but really fun at the same time. So, yeah. Nice. I love that. How important, speaking of writer's mindset, how important is it to hone your mindset and to develop your thick skin as a writer in today's publishing landscape? I honestly think it's everything. Because if you look at the people who've been in it for the long haul, they are the people who are on a path of continuous development, whether that is improving their craft or their business or understanding themselves a little bit more. And the people who aren't doing that tend to be the people who get bored or ruminate on the fact their books aren't selling enough. And instead of trying to fix that problem, they just get inside their head and go, it's not selling, it's not selling, I suck. And that imposter syndrome just progressively gets worse, right? But if you're trying to find new ways to do it and you're aware of the fact that the landscape is always changing that growth mindset is going to mean that you can sustain the adversity because there will be adversity much more because you know that it is a temporary state and you are in control to a degree of it but there are some things you also just have to let go what are some ways that you have worked specifically on your mindset over the past however many years are there any sort of resources or recommendations or people that you kind of recommend to hone their their mind there is one that I recommend quite a lot actually um as I mentioned before I have chronic pain and at the start of 2020 I could barely get out of bed I left my day job because I just kept being signed off sick I couldn't work I I couldn't think straight I was basically spending my days on the sofa with Millie playing Stardew Valley because I couldn't even play a game that had a plot because my brain would just overanalyze it and pick things apart and um, I was in a really bad place and I was late night doom strolling as you do and came across a news article about this thing that sounded really woo-woo. I don't like woo-woo for the record. I like science. Mm-hmm. And it was a treatment program called Curable for chronic health issues such as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, migraines, basically any of those where the doctors go, we don't know what's causing it, have some drugs. And um, I thought, you know what? I have got nothing to lose because this article had been written by the partner of someone who's who had had chronic migraines and she'd gone from having them near daily to like maybe one or two a month, if that, just from doing the curable program. 
And I thought this sounds batshit, but I'm going to give it a go. And um, I worked through Curable and it involves a combination of facing your fears, of understanding the science of pain and how physical and emotional pain are processed in the same part of the brain, which means suppressed emotional pain can often manifest as physical pain. Mm. And um, it's also to do with meditation and mindfulness and also some writing exercises to get out what you are suppressing. And quite often I find people are afraid of those writing exercises or they don't go deep enough because you've got to go to that place that you're afraid to go to, which means that you sometimes have to do an exercise multiple times to get to the bottom of it. And I remember doing one of the exercises and this is going to sound absolutely insane, but I finished doing this writing exercise and I just felt the pain melt away from my body. And I'm not hundred percent pain-free. I have some days better than others, but in January, I actually finished two weeks of boxing workouts never done boxing before but you know that's a massive achievement for me to do any form of cardio because i've got no upper body strength i can't throw a punch i can't throw a kick i'm just a massive weakling so and i hate exercise as well i completely hate it but i have found that exercise really helps me to be able to focus and be more productive again i hate being the exercise person but it does help (laughs) and it has to be the stuff i really dislike like cardio um, that, that gets my heart rate up because exercise can help fix some dodgy wirings in your brain, particularly if you've got things like ADHD, it temporarily fixes those connections. And for most of February, I had a raging throat infection, so I couldn't breathe enough to exercise. And um, I found towards the end of February, I couldn't get as much stuff done. And then I started exercising again and had a really productive day. And that's when I realized how much of a difference it was making to me. But when I was doing the act of exercising, I didn't connect those thoughts. It was only when I started to lose it again that I really realized the difference it was making. And I think the other thing is just being really open to anything. You don't have to believe things like curable or exercise will work for you. You just have to be open to the possibility of it and giving it a real shot. Don't half-ass it. Just throw yourself in and go, what the fuck? Mm Because you've got nothing to lose, right? The only thing you're going to lose is you know, hating yourself, being in pain, not being able to concentrate, all these things that hold people back in life. Yeah. And I mean, it is, well, number one, like, congratulations on your recovery so far. That sounds like, obviously, like, it could have been kept in a very sort of bad state and it seems like things are on the up. Um, I, I certainly have a glimpse of what it's like to be so in your head that it's it does feel like nothing is going to work and that you are kind of like stuck in this position. Um and really, really annoyingly, the only way to kind of work through that is to take some kind of action in a direction, whatever that direction is. And, you know, I'm doing, you've got your own productivity book out, productivity writers. I'm working on a productivity book at the minute. And so I'm sure that you'll resonate with the fact like there are so many different factors to make you productive, but sometimes it's hard to know which one to focus on. And in focusing on one thing, you then forget the other thing. So, you know, things like nutrition, things like sleep, things like exercise, they're very, very basic human things that we do, but how much thought do we give to them? And I find that, you know, I'll have nights where I'll really focus on sleep and I'll be good for a week, but then for whatever reason, I'll just start eating shit. And then that affects it in one way. So putting all these different strings together, um, how has that kind of program and, you know, the, the stuff that you've learned from it altered just your week in terms of the things that you do specifically to try and be productive because you obviously you have you still have sort of the the resonations of these chronic pains and and conditions ongoing but you still find a way to be involved in a lot of things and to be getting things done so what what does that kind of look like for you 
I try to be kind to myself and I think that's what a lot of people miss is everyone thinks I do loads I only work part-time <laughs> <laughs> branding really... marketing folks <laughs> yeah I, I don't do lo- I do do loads um I usually do say three client pieces a month which are about a thousand dish word a week sorry which are about a thousand words each I sometimes I don't do as much book stuff if um say I'm recovering from doing something because I've realized I do need a break sometimes between books or between drafts things like that and I spend some time with the dog I watch a lot of YouTube videos I have a weird thing my rest isn't so much that I'm like mooching Mm. I tend to be learning things when I'm resting I I have realized I have this obsession with learning so um I'm learning about nutrition I'm learning Spanish um what was the other thing I started I've forgotten the other thing um learning's going well <laughs> yeah yeah really well um but it's just a lot of it is psychology like one of the things that really interests me in the Spanish course I'm doing because he talks about the psychology of language learning and how to make it stick and turn it into more of a habit and stuff and I find that resonates with me a lot more than um some of the ones that just gamify it and tell you do this do that and I did do that for a while but it just started to wind me up getting the constant notifications you haven't practiced today I don't want to practice today I'm tired go away I think Um, I know which app you're talking about (laughs) I I did have a 200 day streak on that app last year but I just realized I wanted something that had a bit more variety and wasn't ramming things down my throat so I could pace myself a bit more. And mm-hmm. I, I still try and do it daily, but I don't. So I think what I'm going to do now is I'll probably like try and do it three times a week or something instead. Because the course I'm doing now, there is kind of, like I say, the psychology-based stuff where you learn some new words, then you rehearse the new words, and then there's also a workbook as well. So mm-hmm. it's got a bit more variety to it, which I really like. And um, I've gone off on a tangent and don't remember what the question was. <laughs> Did I answer the question? Possibly. Now you're stretching my mind. Oh, wow. <laughs> we're, we're, oh, you were talking about how I get everything done. When you? Yes, there we go. Yeah, I, I pace myself and I also have a planner. I write everything down that I have to do. And I also use an app called TickTick. So I can track all of my daily habits in TickTick and it sets me a, ri- a reminder. Have you eaten some vegetables today? Have you eaten some fruit? Have you taken your probiotic? Have you done some exercise? And some people find that naggy. I find it useful because Mm. I can go, oh, no, I haven't done that. I'll do that at this point. And I find that that just helps keep me a bit more focused without having to write it down. And then when I'm doing my client work, for example, I break it down into, okay, I need to do research for this post. I need to do a draft. I need to edit that draft. I need to copy edit that draft and I need to send it. So I break things up really, really granular. So I get that kind of endorphin fix from achieving something, which is particularly good when you are not used to being productive. I know some people can find that technique a little bit overwhelming because they've got so much to do. But for me personally, I find it really works because the more things I tick off, the more of a dopamine fix I get. And so then the better my mood is on top of doing the exercise and things. Yeah. Exercise does go on my to-do list. Yeah. Yeah. Building that momentum and just exactly repeated behavior. Yeah. Um, so how does your week look? Cause you have your fiction, you have nonfiction books that I'm, I'm not sure if you're working on any at the minute, you have your podcast, you have obviously client work. How do you arrange your, your week in a way that it works for you? I keep it as flexible as possible. Um, I have a rule, which is I don't do more than one call a day and I do not do anything before lunchtime. I say do anything. I do do stuff before lunchtime. Mm. I wake up naturally and I have, I do some exercise. 
I have breakfast and shower. And then um, if my boyfriend hasn't already, then I will walk the dog. And I just kind of ease myself into the day because I spend, well, until I became, until like this year, basically, my mornings, particularly when I had a day job, my mornings involved darting out of the door as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So that I could get to school or so that I could get a parking space at the tram to get to work because the walk to the tram to get to work was too much for me. And um, that meant that I was having to get up at half six in the morning and I don't get to sleep that easily. That's one of the fun things about chronic fatigue syndrome is I can't sleep even though I'm tired. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you've got to love the uh, contradiction, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so it's really hard for me to adjust my sleeping pattern. And when people used to say, oh, well, why don't you try going to bed earlier? Why don't you try some aromatherapy? Oh, uh, I... yeah. Hadn't thought of that. Don't ever be that person, <laughs> listeners. Please, I beseech you. Don't tell someone who can't sleep to try aromatherapy or go to bed earlier. I beseech you. Don't do it. <laughs> also, points of beseech. I've not heard that in ages in the conversation. Word. <laughs> it's a good word. I like my old-fashioned words. I like it. I do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so yeah I wasn't sleeping that well which probably made my chronic fatigue syndrome worse (laughs) and my fibro worse because my brain was like just trying to run on nothing and so it got to the point where I just thought when I'm doing stuff first thing I don't feel fully present I'm not quite compostmentish yet Mm -hmm. and I always remember I think I get it from my dad because I remember him saying that it is old job. If his boss wanted anything from him before 10 a.m., he'd write it on a piece of paper and shove it across the table because he was afraid to talk to my dad before 10 a.m. <laughs> my dad started work at six. Wow. Because he was a factory worker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I get that from my dad, except my body clock's slightly different. So it's until about lunchtime for me. And I just keep that time really precious because it means I start the day in a good mood. And sometimes mm-hmm. I will do writing in that morning time, like uh, when I was working on Hollywood Heartbreak and drafting uh, Necromancer Secret, which is out soon. Um, I was in a very good routine of doing a writing sprint with Ellie first thing. We do 30 to 45 minutes and then um, I would go do exercise and then breakfast and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we only stopped that because I don't know why we stopped. I think it might have been Christmas got in the way. But um, I do quite like writing first thing in the morning. Um, because I'm not awake enough to judge myself. Mm. Um, I sometimes did editing in that time as well, because, you know, most of writing a book is editing it. Um, But I just found it really kept me out of my own head. But Ellie and I did have a bit of a rule that I wouldn't speak to her on the call, because we do (sighs) do it on a Zoom call, but I um, would just, like, nod or shake my head or type stuff, because I didn't (laughs) want to wake my boyfriend and the dog up, and also I just didn't want to talk that early, (laughs) because we were doing it like half seven eight o'clock before she started work mm-hmm. and I found that really helpful and then I do I tend to do calls about like between about 12 and 3 for most most of the time although I do keep it open for other people like I'm interviewing someone in the US and then around that I will do my client work and I like I say I keep it very flexible when I do stuff because I find that that makes it a lot easier um when my health does flare up when I'm just feeling kind of blah mentally or when my hands hurt because they did last year I was writing 5,000 words a day drafting a book and they did hurt quite a bit after that um wouldn't recommend it but did learn a lot (laughs) and um I think having the to-do list really helps because I'm like okay I haven't done enough today what can I do all right this thing's easy and I'll tick it off because I'm sure you've heard of the eat that frog 
mentality where you do the biggest thing first. I mm-hmm. don't. I do the opposite because if I look at having to do this massive thing in front of me, my brain's going, no, nah, I'm good. And then just like stops. Yeah. But if I do something small, I get that dopamine fix and then I can build up and build up. And then the big thing doesn't feel quite so insurmountable anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel more capable of doing it. And that's also why I try and break things down as much as possible, because again, things don't feel as intimidating or as insurmountable. I mean, I, I love every part of that answer. The fact that, you know, because the general popular advice that like you say is eat that frog first, Brian Tracy um, concept in his book. And what you've you know had to adjust, you had to learn is that you work in a different way and that's okay. And I think there are lots of people that, I think when you first start out, there's almost um, an expectation to try the typical way and people do. And then if that doesn't work for them, they think, oh, I'm not built for this writing the gig, whatever it is they're trying to do. But the reality is it's understanding yourself because no matter what you're going to work into, no matter what your career is going to look like, there's going to be an element of having to adapt some way to a way that suits you so that you can still get the job done. Do you find that because of the flare ups that you do have with your um, chronic health, that in the periods of um sort of feeling better that you find yourself how am i phrasing this that you want to get more done in that period just to account for that is there an element of you needing to be ahead or do you find that it kind of relatively balances out based off of the amount of work that you're taking on sometimes it depends on what i've got to do although there are occasions where my health flares up and i get more done because i find that actually getting things done distracts me from how crap i feel Um, because your brain can only process so many things at once so if you are fully focused on writing something or on making yourself really breathless on an exercise bike you can't be in your head enough to go oh shit that hurts or I'm really not in the mood for this like I felt really crap before this call because you know the state of the world right now Mm -hmm. and um, the fact that I'm still recovering from being ill in February but I, you know, hopped on the call and I'm talking to you and now I'm fine, you know, hey. and it's just being in that moment makes a massive difference. And I think people forget that that's really what meditation and mindfulness is yes. and why it's important, because it pulls you out of your own head and out of the rumination and out of everything except what you're seeing, thinking, feeling, doing this mm. very second. Yeah, there's a concept that I came across um over the last few months about drown drowning training have you have you heard of this i haven't so uh, i learned of it through margot robbie who'd been through it so she's a professional well she's been trained to dive so maybe not professional but she's trained to um, be a diver over in where water is doesn't really matter where but so she went through a, a phase of drown training so when you drown apparently there are certain there are several phases before you even get to the point that oxygen starvation works to kill you and to trained to be a deep sea professional diver you have to go through this process of understanding the different stages because when we starve ourselves like so for example if i duck my head below the water the minute that my body goes oh my god you're not breathing there's that sudden impulse to push myself up to get up and just fill my lungs with oxygen um and i might be getting the, the stats slightly wrong here. it's been a while since i brushed up on this but there's at least like a seven eight minute window before you can fully drown in a, a situation depending on what your mindset is in that situation so they they bring people under the water and they basically just hold them there and as your body starts protesting and kicking that's phase one you know what that phase is you know there are six other phases coming after so you're able therefore to hold it because you're not suddenly going this is the end you get to level two where and again i'm making this up um just to kind of highlight but say like your arms you stop feeling the feeling in your arms like that's phase two it's okay there's more phases to come so it's just kind of 
preparedness about the situation that you can then do more because you're less worried about the current one that you're in. You kind of like, you know, that this is part of it. And I mean, a lot of that comes from, especially sort of bringing this more back to mindset in, in writing and, and sort of health problems and stuff like a lot of that, uh, I imagine comes back to understanding the process, going through the process enough times to know that like, this is a part of it. When I'm in this phase, I'm able to still do this. But when I hit this point, I'm done. Like I've, I've become very, very critical of myself over the last um, 18 months. Or so I've had, like periods where there was a week last year where I was on a call with um, my my VA and halfway through the call I just said I'm really sorry but I'm gonna have to stop this because I was taking nothing in and I was giving nothing back and between that I was you know I was um, trying to get client work done I was looking at moving house I had all this other stuff going on with family and so I had to in that point go I need to stop and for a week I pulled back from everything because I knew the signs and I knew what needed to happen if, in order to heal faster and keep moving forward. Um, and it's just, it's just an ongoing journey. It is. And it's funny you say that because I did that when I had my throat infection, I um, took a few days to rest and I was very upfront with my clients. Like I've got the lurgy. Mm. Uh, I couldn't speak. I had to cancel calls and interviews and all th- sorts. I had no voice and I don't lose my voice very often. So it was really annoying, but the dog, my boyfriend thought it was great. And, um, <laughs> Particularly the dog, because I couldn't tell her off for cheering up horse. Oh, bless her. <laughs> <laughs> and my clients were really lovely. They said, you know what, take your time. My readers were lovely as well. They were like, if it means the book launches a little bit later, you know, if you can't do a live video this month, we understand. And um, I actually felt like mentally I recovered faster because there was less pressure. Mm-hmm. But it's funny you talk about the drowning training because I've finished reading a book yesterday and it was talking about how to live a longer, healthier life. And one of the things she talks about is a bit like what you were talking about. It wasn't extreme as drowning training, but she talked about things like cold water swimming and cold showers. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that people who exercise and take daily cold showers reduce their sickness leave at work by 54%. That's a and huge they feel time. more awake just from taking that cold shower. And I've I was reluctant to do that because I am very sensitive to the cold. But I thought, oh, you know what, why not? Because the idea is like the small trauma to your body builds up your immune system and all these other things that keep you healthier. And um, I've done it a couple of days and it does actually mean that I am drinking less caffeine so far. Hmm. And I've become somewhat addicted to caffeine to be able to focus again lately, which is not good, but another story. And um <laughs> Yeah, I just found it really interesting that just like it's like 10 seconds, maybe. And it's not like freezing cold or anything. It's just my definition of cold. Yes. And it still made a difference, Mm -hmm. even though it sounds terrifying. Yeah. And it is, you know, putting yourself in those hard situations purpose. We, you know, are or obviously not everyone, but a lot of us uh, are in positions in which we are lucky enough to have a roof over our heads, be able to, you know, fill our bellies. We're in a warm environment when it's cold outside. And so sometimes we do need to shock the system a little bit. And I think it's um, just to kind of add one more uh, example to this this point is uh, David Goggins, um, ex-Marine SEAL, always kind of like world's hardest man. He uh, One thing that I, I took from him was that he was saying that when you think you've reached 100, you've actually reached 40. So when working out at that point, and, you know, I've been through this where as you're working out, say you're in the gym, you've got weights at that point where you feel like things are starting to hurt and your body goes stop because your body's designed to repel pain and to stop you and to protect you. So the minute you start feeling that pain, it's not that you're done. 
It's just that your body's kicking into protective mode and there is more that you can do. And that is where the growth happens in kind of, well, in, in gym terms. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a whole, it's a fascinating subject, like the whole lot, just our minds, how we protect ourselves and things that we can do to push it. Yeah, because chronic pain is a protection method as well. Mm. My fatigue as well. Um, I used to nearly fall, well, no, I did fall asleep before doing live videos. Um, and um, it, it took me a while, but it was doing curable that made me realize that the fatigue was my body's way of trying, well, my mind's way of trying to protect me from doing this thing that I was afraid to do. Mm. And as soon as I realized that, I could put coping mechanisms in place where now, I don't fall asleep. I don't necessarily always enjoy doing lives. I'll be totally honest with you. But oh, they're draining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but I, I've been trying to do one a month this year because it helps me build up that resilience and build up those skills. It makes me a better speaker. It helps me connect with my readers. So it has benefits, even though it's something that I don't necessarily enjoy as much as sitting and writing about ghosts. Mm. Let's quickly touch on your fiction, uh, just because okay. we are we are coming close to time. But I do want to talk to you about this because you you do write across a lot of different genres. You have uh, a fair chunk of different series. You have the behind the spotlight, afterlife calls, Hollywood gossip, what happens in, and I've seen on the website Empath as well. Um, how do you approach your fiction and sort of the genres that you choose to write in? Um, it's the stuff I enjoy reading. I grew up mostly reading fantasy and women's fiction and romance. And so that's um, what my main kind of um, stuff under Christina Adams is. It's the stuff I grew up reading and they're all part of the same universe. So it's similar characters. They're all friends with each other and stuff like that. And then Afterlife Calls, um, I actually vowed I would never write fantasy again about 10 years ago. Mm. How's that going? Because, <laughs> because I fucking hate world building. That's not yeah. hyperbole. I hate it. I hate it so much. It's like one of the things at the top of my list of most hated things alongside like spring onions. And um, wow. that I hate spring onions and red onions. I really, although I will eat them cooked. So it's like actually, it's kind of like world building. There are some contexts <laughs> where they're palatable. <laughs> Excuse me. And it started with Empath, which I haven't published yet for the record. That's something I'm going to rewrite this summer. And um, I it was a story I told myself after I had had an endoscopy and I won't go into the details of that but it's not comfortable afterwards and um, I was trying to distract myself from how I can't even describe it as pain it was just the weirdest sensation in my stomach Mm. and um, so I was trying to tell myself a story to distract myself and I ended up telling myself empath and I came up with all three books and um I thought, oh my God, I really want to write this. But I kind of messed up because I was really excited about it. And I started telling everyone about it and everyone got really excited about the premise because the premise is that she is an empath with no compassion. And she's an empath in the magical sense. So she can like sense what the people around her are feeling. And there's also her love interest and um, the secondary main character, because it's also his point of view, um, he can heal. And um, he's a police officer investigating the crimes. And it sounds really great, but then you sit down and write it and there's a lot going on. My brain goes, shit. And I I think I've written two or three versions of it now. And I know people might think I'm being harsh on myself, but I know it's not right yet. Mm -hmm. You know, when you just instinctively know. Yeah. I know some of the elements are there. I'm still working on some to fix it. Like I've been reading the fantasy fiction formula and that's really helped me fix some of the stuff with the main character. And um, 
while I was like toying with empath, I was focusing on the Hollywood gossip books. And then this is going to sound really cheesy, but I had a dream and the dream was the end of the ghost call. And I woke up and thought, I've got to write about these characters. And this was June, 2020. And, um, I just really loved the characters and what was happening and the fact that they were a mother-daughter ghost hunting duo. And yeah, so I ended up kind of working out how they got to this point that I'd already dreamt about. And somewhat ironically, because I didn't do a really in-depth outline, almost forgot the ending. (laughs) But I I, I came up with something that works, that's fine. And I just could not get Neve and Edie, the main characters, out of my head. And everyone who's read it is really lovely and says, like, it's, it's funny because so many people comment on the world building of it. <laughs> um, and I will have all four books out, the first four books, sorry, because they're part of one arc. And then there's going to be some standalones for a bit, probably by June, which means I'll have released the first four in a year, which is a record for me for a series. Nice. And um, I just really enjoy spending time with those characters. And because, um, some of the people who read the first version of the ghost call really pushed me on it to fix some of the world building, how much I knew things like that. It meant that I don't have to do so much world building now that I'm further into the series. Mm. <laughs> so it's a lot easier because I've gotten over that hurdle like a year ago. Um, but I will confess I very nearly gave up at one point um, because it felt like I had so much to do on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting on a Zoom call with Ellie and she just had to give me a pep talk and say, no, you've got this. You've got something really good. The characters are amazing. Um, The plot's really good. You've just got to work on the world building. You've just got to push it. And if you can get past that now, then it's less work further down the line. And it's not as much as it seems like. It's just because you haven't done it before. It feels bigger. And last year really taught me so much about myself as a writer and about the craft because I was doing a new genre and I was also writing a very emotionally draining book in Hollywood Heartbreak because Hollywood Heartbreak covers addiction, death, grief, eating disorders, um, lots of other things that I've forgotten because there's so (laughs) much that goes on in that book. And so it was quite emotionally draining. And I may have then written The Necromancer's Secret, which was somewhat emotionally draining as well. So that was bad timing on my part. Mm. Yeah, the uh, the the traps we put ourselves into. I mean, what I like about um, what I've seen on your site is you had this idea for the first in the afterlife calls book series, and then on the website you've you've got all four up ready to go with like roughly you know a rough date of when they're going to come out. And for me, I come from a background of um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that like the books that I put out are minimum viable products, but in terms of that um, ethos, I will put a book out, kind of test to see how successful it is, and then decide whether or not to write the next one. And so what is it that gives you that conviction to go, okay, book one done? Is it, I mean, my guess is that, you know, because it comes from a place of passion and you want to tell the story as opposed to it being sort of um, centred and the and linchpin around the fact like of like hundreds and hundreds of readers. Is that is that kind of a fair assumption? Sort of. I think because my first series took so long to take off that it gives me faith that, okay, it might take a bit for this series to take mm. off as well, but I haven't told this whole story yet. So I want to wait because I know a lot of readers won't read a book on its own. They want to read the whole series. And I do have readers who will read one book and wait patiently for the next one. But a lot of people won't. And so I'm very mindful of that. And, you know, I am also slightly obsessed with writing afterlife calls. It's kind of been my therapy a lot of the time. 
and so and, and also the passion of the readers of it some of the things they say um ellie is one of my beta readers for it and she's so obsessed she's created the porter family on the sims Whoa. including the dog love it that's how much she loves the books and one of my other beta readers who's read every single one of my books she's mega passionate about this and i am very bad for blurting out spoilers particularly to ellie <laughs> And a couple of my other friends who beta read for me. And um, I did something at the end of book four that no one knows about. I've never kept a secret from any of them before, particularly not one like this. I usually like say to Ellie, oh, what do you think to this? And she's going like, oh my God, that's really cool. And this time I was like, no, this is so big. I want to know your reaction when you read it. Mm-hmm. And my other, one of my friends really doesn't like spoilers anyway, so won't let me tell her anything. She just says, I hope this character dies. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just had to reply with like the emoji with the zip on the mouth because like it's killing me not to say anything to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, I think she's actually going to read that that scene tonight where something happens with the characters that's so big. And I'm like, not she's saying waiting. anything to her. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's in a different time zone to me as well. So it's even worse. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think when other people are passionate about it as well, that really reassures me. And I think it is an element of patience, which I don't generally have. Um, but yeah, seeing how long what happens in t- took to took up. No. You know what I mean? Yes. How long it took for what happens yeah. in to take off, which is about three years since it was published. And then I did a book bub deal, my first book bub deal on what happens in New York uh, on the 10th of February. And it hit number six for the whole of Amazon UK. Damn. And that was six years after it was published yeah so it has taught me that you know i do need to not constantly um expect things to happen immediately i am a very impatient person um (laughs) i get bored very quickly but i think the fact i care about my characters and my readers care about my characters it does help quite a lot Mm. um but i do sometimes forget that i've only published two fantasy books because i'm already thinking about like book seven (laughs) <laughs> because I, I don't I sort of have an end to the series in mind but I could also continue beyond that point mm-hmm. um, and like I say beyond book four some of them are going to operate as semi standalones so because oh, nice. the the reason the series is called Afterlife Calls is because it's much more flexible than if I just focused on ghosts like the first book so afterlife I can bring in things like vampires I can bring in zombies you know I can bring in pretty much whatever I want because it establishes it's, it's a fantasy series not just about ghosts and so there's a lot of things and a lot of mythology that I can play with and I really like playing with that because it's not something I've done before and it stretches my writing ability without being as emotionally draining for the most part as the Hollywood Gossip series which does cover some very heavy topics but from quite a dark sense of humor shall we say gotcha Man, I mean, there is so much more that I want to ask you, but I, I fear that we are, <laughs> I'm pushing time a little bit. So I, I do have one more question for you before we round off this interview, which is, why do you, Christina Adams, write? Why do I write? Mm. I write to escape and I also write to inspire people. Um, writing, particularly fiction, helps me to get out of my own head. And I like to hope that by sharing my character's stories and by sharing my own story 
that it makes people realize that yeah they can go after their dreams it doesn't matter what their background is it doesn't matter what their dreams are why not go after it you know and also like I say I hope it offers them some level of escapism because I do believe that all books on some level are about escapism and particularly things like romance and chiclet I do think um there is a level of fantasy there in the same way that afterlife causes fantasy because it's got ghosts in love it well fantastic thank you so much christina for jumping on the show and chatting with me and spending some time with me where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on so you can check out the writer's cookbook and the writer's mindset podcast at writerscookbook.com and you can find my books at christinaadamsauthor.com and that is christina with a k perfect and we'll put all those links in the show notes a massive thank you again christina for joining me on the podcast today a massive thank you to you the listeners for tuning in and as always if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out all about our community our resources and everything else that we've got going on one more time thank you christina and Thanks see you so next much. week bye. bye bye activate your energy